If you want to open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 9, or you can open up the Bible app on your phone, and if you go under, um, oh, I can't remember what the, what events, thank you, you'll see Grace Lutheran Church, and then it'll pull up our scripture, uh, or you can use the Bible that's in the pew, it's page 621 for Daniel chapter 9. Last week we had a little bit of a respite from our series in Daniel as we were blessed to have the opportunity to hear testimony, vision casting through our new mission partnership with Lee and Katie Humarian, what a blessing that was last week. But we're back now in Daniel, and in case you haven't been with us or forgot, we are in the second half of the book of Daniel. We're nearing the end. And about chapter 7, a couple of weeks back, we experienced a shift in this book. It really was kind of a jolting shift, actually, because we moved from this sort of linear historical narrative, that's what the chapters were like, these stories about how God worked in and through the life of Daniel in the past, we moved to what we call apocalyptic literature, starting in chapter 7. These four visions that are given to Daniel over the course of the the remaining chapters that are about how God would act in and through his people in the future. If you've been with us at all as we've been in some of these chapters, it's been a bit of a wild ride. We've been swimming in these majestic pictures of the interplay and intersection between earthly and heavenly realities. And it's sometimes been dark, It's been dark and disturbing, the images that we've seen of the kingdoms of man warring against each other. But time and time again, and today is no different, we witness the power and the hope of the greater kingdom of God. In the midst of that, the last time we left Daniel, even though this is all true, Daniel was troubled and confused by all he'd seen. It's important to remember the context in which these visions come to Daniel. Remember that he's an old man when he starts to receive these revelations from God. The life that he's lived, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, he was stolen as a youth and made to serve a foreign, godless king. This is probably not the life that Daniel would have chosen. And yet, by faith, he persisted in hope. We've seen that through the stories of Daniel that we started with. But now, after all these years, imagine that well into his 80s, Daniel is now confronted by a description of a seemingly bleak future. The continued suffering and persecution of his people. Yes, over and against the Lord's assurance of his sovereignty and salvation, but still, nonetheless, a future of suffering and persecution. My point is, a vision, visions like these, could have been Daniel's breaking point. What do you do? What do you do when you're faced with a future that doesn't go where you want it to go? And as we come to chapter 9 this morning, we actually get to witness Daniel's answer to this question. It's several years later, and the dominance of Babylon has given way to the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire. And we find Daniel unchanged, just where we left him, engaging the life before him, not drawing back, but back to work, being a blessing, faithfully serving the next king before whom he bows. You look at Daniel, and it's easy to admire him. It's easy to admire a person like Daniel, someone who came from humble roots and rose to a place of great influence and did so not through deceitful cunning, but with courage, integrity, and faithfulness. It can be so easy to admire the person of Daniel without appreciating how he became such a remarkable person, how he matured into such a witness of faith. And today's reading In case we've lost sight of that or missed it, today's reading reminds us that the core of Daniel's life, his person, was not his skill as a politician, but his heart for God as expressed through his prayer life. 
As we are about to see what kept Daniel going all these years in the midst of these visions, what enabled him to remain focused and persevere was Daniel was a person of the book, the Bible, and a person of prayer. With that in mind, let's hear from Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, Hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open, because we're going to talk about what's going on here. What 
is happening is Daniel is in the midst, as we talked about, of the transition from power, of power from Babylon to Persia. And as this transition is happening, Daniel clearly has his Bible open. As history is happening, Daniel is trying to understand how to engage what he witnesses taking place around him. We're told he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And in reading the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel perceives he may be watching the beginning of the end. The end of exile, the beginning of a homecoming for his people. By this point on the timeline, they have been in exile for about 66 years. And as he read in Daniel, after 70 years, the Lord had promised through Jeremiah that he would come to his people and lead them back to Jerusalem. And so we have this picture of Daniel, expectantly engaged with the world around him, longing for the restoration of his people, and immersed in the word of God. And those three things are so important, that picture actively engaged in the world, longing for the restoration of his people, and immersed in the word of God. And it's these three things working together that prompt Daniel, as verse 3 reads, to turn to the Lord. Other translations put it this way, being actively engaged in the world, longing for the restoration of his people, immersed in the word of God, prompts Daniel to set his face to seek God. In other words, Daniel responds through prayer through prayer, personally speaking and listening to God. Daniel believed. God had spoken to Jeremiah, and in the same way Daniel believed, God could and would speak to him. And we stopped reading, but if your Bible's still open, you see that God does respond immediately, right as Daniel is is praying. Verse 20, while Daniel is still speaking, the angel Gabriel comes with a word from the Lord. And God's answer to Daniel is probably what stands out for most people in this passage because God's answer to Daniel is what has become known as the 70 weeks passage. And it's this section of chapter 9 that I would argue is among some of the most controversial passages in all scripture. Because it's, it's controversial not because of what it reveals, it's become controversial because of how this next part of Daniel is interpreted. If you're not familiar at all with what I'm talking about, all kinds of attempts have been, made, have been made to do the math with this passage, to try to deduce the order in which things will happen at the end of time. I mean, if you've ever looked at this at all, ever heard of this passage at all, this answer of 70 weeks, right? There, you can read a dozen different commentators and theologians and get a dozen different answers about what historical details these verses line up with. And for many of you, you may have come this morning seeing that it was Daniel chapter 9 and thought this is where we're going to dig in. And I hate to disappoint you, but we're not. Because, again, what I want to do is I want to encourage us that not to be focused here as much as somewhere else. But before I go to that somewhere else, I want to tell you when you see passages like this, and I've told you this before, don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked by apocalyptic timetables or end times equations. And that is rampant right now in the church. And such arithmetic, while interesting, makes for really titillating sermons and talks. It's always speculative to the point of distraction. One thing the Bible is clear on. God makes it clear. Jesus repeats it. We will not know the hour or the day. God gives Daniel this vision for a reason. I don't want to shy away from that. This is to be understood at some level. But it's to encourage us. It's not to make us afraid, and it's certainly not to make us fight. Like I've told you before, apocalyptic prophecy often has multiple historical horizons of fulfillment. 
Meaning, it's more helpful to pursue visions like these of 70 weeks in less of a linear manner, trying to isolate dates on a calendar or as an equation, and to see it more in terms of concentric circles. Because what we're actually being given here is a glimpse of a bigger picture, the eternal movement of God. Not linear, the eternal movement of God. And, it, and therefore, because it's the eternal movement of God, it has these multiple historical horizons of fulfillment. And when God works in this way, it's always easier to recognize the movement of God in hindsight than it is to predict in terms of the future. So like I said, there's a huge diversity of opinion about how all that what Daniel hears from the angel Gabriel will come to pass. There's a lot of opinion about how it will all come to pass. But what we can and do have is great unity about what it all means, what God has promised. And it's this. The Lord wants Daniel and all of Israel to know that getting home from Babylon is not as straightforward as it seems. While the people will indeed return geographically to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile, there's a lot more to come in terms of God's complete work of salvation. The sum of this vision is the point that we've heard already before, that eventually in God's timing, not ours, Verse 24, everlasting righteousness will prevail. The Lord will put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, and anoint the most holy place. In other words, my friends, all that Daniel is being shown, all that is anticipated, is and will be accomplished by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we hold on to. That's our takeaway. And you see this morning, it's out of that promise this assurance that I want to direct our focus towards what I believe is the true centerpiece of this passage of Daniel chapter 9. And it's the prayer. Previously, if you've been with us, we actually got to go through a, 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 a historical encounter with Daniel where we learned it was his practice to center his life around prayer, praying three times a day. And in that story, you remember of the lion's den, Daniel's rhythm of prayer was such a commitment that he kept even under the threat of death. We had that story where we got to kind of get a sense of Daniel's prayer, but here in chapter 9, it's, we're blessed because we're able to listen in and learn from one of Daniel's actual prayers. And I truly believe this is one of the great prayers of Scripture. We, we have so, there's so much here for us to talk about. We're going to barely scratch the surface. But the focal point I want you to see as, a, as something for us to learn from is that this is a prayer of confession. This is a prayer of confession. And I think it's important to kind of underline this for all of us because when you and I speak of prayer, we don't normally, typically focus on confession, do we? I mean, our general understanding of prayer, sort of garden variety, generic understanding of prayer is, is about asking God for things. When I say, do you pray, that's normally what you think about, right? It's not, it's asking God for stuff, not listing off a bunch of our flaws and failures. I mean, when we think here confession, for many of us, we think, well, confession is, is something we do through prayer when we first ask Jesus into our lives, right? I mean, I mean, we've got to kind of come clean, and we kind of lay out ourselves, and then we ask Jesus into our lives. But confession is not something that's normally a part of our prayers, right? I mean, if we're honest, most of us, if, if I were to track you when you pray, we just kind of dive right in, don't we? Lord, how you doing up there? This is what's on my mind. This is on my heart. Make it happen, Lord. Go to work. Prayer is about telling God what we need. And maybe, maybe fitting in a little bit to kind of maybe hear where he might tell us some things he wants to do or is doing. Now, okay, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm over, overstating it. I mean, let, let's, let's be real. If we fall away from God 
for a spell, run away from God, pull away for a spell. Maybe if we blow off some commandments, you know, do something really heinous, well then sure, okay, we'll get down on our knees and confess a few things, right? I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Oh, it's, kind of, it's been kind of, kind of bad, kind of distance, okay. We'll get down on our knees and we'll confess. I mean, because most of us know, we learned, we know how and when to say we're sorry. But the first thing I want you to see in this prayer that Daniel gives us is apologizing, saying I'm sorry, is not the same thing as confession. Apologizing, saying I'm sorry, is not the same thing as confession. I mean, think about it. We apologize for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, we apologize for lots of different reasons. We apologize because it's expected. Okay, I'm sorry. We apologize to end an argument. All right, I'm sorry. Jeez. We apologize out of politeness. I'm sorry. We apologize to move on. All right, I'm sorry. Come on. What I'm getting at, we apologize to get out of trouble. Whatever form that trouble takes, that's why we apologize, to get out of an awkward, difficult situation. We want to get out of that. So we say, okay, I'm sorry. But what we see through Daniel's prayer, the very first thing I want to highlight for us this morning, is confession isn't about getting out of trouble with God. Confession isn't about getting out of trouble with God. Confession is about acknowledging our relationship with a righteous God. Confession is about acknowledging our relationship with a righteous God. In other words, true confession begins with the realization of who God is. If you're looking at your Bible, verse 4, notice Daniel, the first thing that Daniel confesses is the goodness of of the character of God. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. These aren't just platitudes Daniel's throwing up to heaven in order to get on the Lord's good side. Daniel, through his time in God's word, and that's why word and prayer are so inseparably linked, Daniel, through his time in God's word and his awareness through being in the word of God of how God is working and moving not only among his people, but through history, leads him to seek to abide in the truth of God's person. Another way to state this and it's counter to how we often think true confession isn't about pulling away from God. Lord, you are so much higher and better and greater than me, and I suck. <laughs> and that's how many of us view the call to confession, right? That's why we're very uncomfortable with it. That's why many of us shy away from it. We view the call to confession as just some kind of superiority trip on God's part. I mean, some of us actually have that image still in our heads that God is some kind of heavenly dicta dictator who barks down orders from above and then gets kicked off when we step out of line. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's what the vision that we, many of us have of God practically. And maybe part of it is because that's how we see ourselves interact with each other. I mean, have, we've all had this experience at some point in your life, right, where you've witnessed someone in authority reprimanding another person. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you happen to be close to it or maybe you're at a public gathering and you've seen, say, a parent with a child or a boss with an employee and we see them reprimanding the other person. And from our vantage point, when we see that, man, the whole encounter seems unfair, right? Maybe we even know a little something about the situation between the parent and the child. Maybe we even know something about the boss and the employer. And we start to think to ourselves that we see this going down. You know, that boss, that's parent, that parent's expectations are way too much. 
They didn't give any instruction, man. They didn't give enough instruction. They didn't provide, you know, enough explanation. They didn't allow that person the chance to make a mistake and learn. They didn't offer a, a chance to make up for their error. We have those encounters all the time where we see this, this and, and, and we, we then extrapolate that on our picture of God. And when we talk about confessing to God, we can view God as that kind of parent, as that kind of boss, you know, that, is, that expects too much of us without giving us a fair shake. But notice in his confession, in his declaration of God's character, don't miss this, in his confession, in his declaration of God's character, Daniel says the Lord isn't like that. The Lord's not like that parent. The Lord's not like that boss. Our father, this king, hasn't just given us a bunch of rules to follow. No, from the beginning, Daniel declares this father, this king, has pursued us through countless conversations. Verse 6, those conversations through the prophets. This father, this king, has offered us his word, the commands and laws. He's given us examples of how things are supposed to be, the boundaries for our well-being. This father, this king, has given us teaching moments like the exodus from Egypt, verse 15. These teaching moments that show us who we can be and how we can trust him. This God has warned us. This father, this king, Daniel says, has warned us in advance of what is coming. Through the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, verse 11, God lays out, this is what's going to happen. And even in the midst of our disobedience, Daniel repeats this a lot, yet we have not obeyed. Even in the midst of our disobedience, Daniel calls out, God continues to offer us a way out a way to turn from our sin. And he offers it again and again and again. True confession is about understanding, recognizing our relationship with a righteous God. And it's not so much about a relationship of superiority, it's that, as it is a relationship of intimacy. I think part of the problem is we have such a watered-down view of confession. I mean, our view of confession can be so one-directional. You know what I'm talking about? So transactional, like I said before. We get caught in wrong, and then we just say, okay, okay, here's all the stuff I did wrong. I'm sorry, Lord, let's move on. Right? But Daniel, through his prayer, teaches us God isn't looking for a personal apology as much as the Lord desires for us to identify what exactly is going on what's driving us astray, and wants to help us deal with it. I'm really pivoting here, and, and, and maybe to help us understand this nuance, it's very important. Maybe I can tell you, maybe it will help you to tell you that our English word confession is not really an accurate translation of the Hebrew word which Daniel uses here, and is used elsewhere in Scripture. Our English word confession is not, an, is not adequate because the Hebrew word that Daniel uses, used throughout Scripture, that we translate as confession, actually translates, it translates as naming, recognition, acknowledgement. In other words, confession is another word for naming. God is about naming the problem. I don't know if you're in your own journey of faith, this has been a struggle, or someone close to you, but those who struggle with addiction in one of its many forms, often the, the biggest obstacle is confessing to the problem, right? The minute they can finally name it, they can begin to solve it. 
Without a name, the problem will never be properly addressed. Addicts apologize all the time, right? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it doesn't change anything until they confess. They name the problem. True confession, my friends, as we see through Daniel's prayer, is acknowledging our relationship with a righteous God. It's not about stroking God's ego. Confession is an invitation into the relationship of all relationships. Again, a relationship not so much about superiority as it is about intimacy. It's the relationship that we have with the Father, our Father, who wants, through confession, to help us name the problem as well as identify all the parts of the process that led us to our particular outcome. It's a relationship with the king, our king, who creates a path out of the problem of our sin, who grants us the provision and the protection and the healing and the salvation we need to come out the other side, to be free. It's a relationship that emerges out of a sense of covenant, out of the character of a God who wants to be known, who seeks to forgive, who doesn't just want us to take hold of him, but desires for us to realize he's already holding us. I don't know if you're tracking with me, but there's a huge, colossal, massive difference between saying, I'm sorry, as a way to get out of trouble, saying I'm sorry as a way to earn forgiveness or to be forgiven. There's a huge difference between that and confessing out of a profound awareness of the ever-widening reach of God's mercy. True confession is more than being relieved. Whew, I'm out of trouble. <laughs> All right. True confession is more than being relieved. It's being humbled by the simultaneous awareness of, of, on the one hand, the scope, the weight, the weight, and the depth of the greatness of our sin, and yet at the same time, the greater compassion of God, especially in light of God's perfection and justice. And that's why Daniel repeats several times in this prayer. He cries out, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, and yet we have sinned. True confession, in other words, is not just being content to be spared. Is that what you think this is? Is that what you think this relationship is about? Is that what this is all about for you, being spared? Daniel articulates in this prayer that true confession is not just being content to be spared. True confession is being overwhelmed by the grace that saves us. Daniel puts it this way in verse 9. This is, for me, the verse Listen to him as he says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. The character of God, but don't miss the next part. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Paul will later write it this way, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. God's grace gives us pause. It leads us to confess because God's promise, I'm hitting this again, is not only that we can actually be forgiven, that we are forgiven, but that we are saved. How many of you have just stopped at this place of forgiveness where God has said, okay, it's all good? We talked about this on Wednesday. Many of us have this relationship with God where it's like we bring our sin bucket to God. We fill it up with all our junk and we come to God and God says, you're forgiven. And we're like, "Woo! sin bucket's empty. Yay, I can go fill it again. 
Forgiven. Woo! Is that your relationship? Is that the relationship you think this God has with you? Wants for you? Or do you understand that more than just simply emptying your bucket, God wants to take away your bucket? God wants to take away your need, your belief that it ever has to be filled. The grace of kingdom salvation is more than just being spared. It is the Lord's promise to redeem us. You hear that through scripture all the time, but if you let that sink in, God doesn't just want to say, give you a pass and say, okay, you're not going to burn in hell. You're not going to, okay, you're forgiven. Now go sit over in the corner because you're disgusting. I can't look at you anymore. <laughs> or you're pathetic. God doesn't just spare us. God wants to redeem us. God wants to restore us. God wants to reconcile us. Let that sink in. Because it's even more than that. When you picture, what does redemption look like? How is God seeking to redeem my life? How is God seeking to restore my community, my family? How is God looking to reconcile the world around me? It's even bigger than that. That's what I mean. You start to get in the depths, it gets way deeper. Because even more than this, God's promise is not just to redeem us, not just to restore us, not just to reconcile us. Think about that. That's sort of putting things back the way they were. God's promise is even bigger than that. God says, my promise is to transform you. To bring you into new, new, abundant and eternal life. My friends, when's the last time you confessed out of that reality? Not just getting out of trouble, but out of your relationship with this righteous God. When have you confessed and been overwhelmed by this beautiful love of God that is so much bigger than you and me? There's this moment in the Gospels. It's one of my favorites. It's a, it's a little moment, but to me, it, it just it, it conveys much of what I'm, I'm hearing in Daniel's prayer. Jesus, in the Gospels, I don't know if you noticed this, is forgiving people left and right before he goes to the cross. That's one of the things we don't talk about. You notice that, right? Jesus doesn't go, hey, you know what? Once I do what I need to do on the cross, then you'll be forgiven. He forgives people before he goes to the cross. What's up with that? And it sort of kind of all of a sudden reveals itself that it's more than just being spared when he encounters this one man who's looking for forgiveness, but then Jesus asks a really provocative question. Do you remember it? Jesus says, do you want to get well? Yeah, I hear all about you want to be forgiven. We're all for being forgiven. We're all for, for being spared. Do you want to get well? We have a God who wants to make us well. When's the last time you confessed and found yourself in that profession of faith, of the character of this God, out of your depth, awed? You know what I'm talking about? Awed by a God whose desire, God's desire, a God whose determination is to bless us more than we are able to sin. And we are able to sin. Sometimes we sit here and we think that confession is about how we get forgiven. And my God, that teaching is rampant in the church, that this idea that confession is how we get forgiven. But Daniel's prayer draws it out. That this, it's not, this is not how it works. God will forgive us if we say we're sorry and we're sincere. Many of you, this is what you think. This is what we think, that if we say we're sorry and we're sincere, God will forgive us. No, true confession isn't just another good work that we use to lay claim of God's forgiveness. True confession is acknowledging we will never get things right. 
True confession is about not trying to get things right. True confession is realizing we're never going to get things right, that we need a Savior, that only God can do it, and that the Lord will do it. That's the gospel. And yet so many of us are so far from it because the question you always ask when you hear the word of God is, what am I supposed to do? You're not supposed to do anything. Everything's been done for you. You're supposed to be out of what's been done. This is what is behind the final cries of Daniel's prayer, and it's so moving to me. And I, I tried to read it with some emotion, and I think I just, ba- just did not hit it at all because I think it's more something we can, it emotes through rather than hearing it. When Daniel cries out, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive, Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay because your city, your people bear your name. Daniel rests not on the reputation of his people, not on their reliability or their commitment to obey. Daniel rests on nothing other than God's own righteousness, the gracious character of the Father. My friends, we haven't earned. We don't deserve God's mercy and grace. It's the greatness, the width and depth of God's love that saves, not our own. That's what we confess. That's the gospel. That's what we confess. Notice what I just said there. That's what we confess. It's the final observation I want to take away from this tremendous prayer. That's what we confess. I don't know about you. When I think about confessing myself before God, I tend to view it as sort of a personal, private matter. Anybody else with me? You know, if I'm confessing, that's kind of my thing. You know, it's my baggage, my business, my stuff. I don't want all you listening in on my dirty laundry, and frankly, I don't want to know all about your dirty laundry. You do what you do, and I do what I do. I tend to view confession as a very personal, private thing. And yet, I don't know if you caught it, but as I listen to Daniel and his conversation with God, Daniel's prayer here reorients my mindset about bearing just my soul. Daniel, in this prayer, shows us true confession isn't just about me. It's about we. It isn't just about me, it's about we. Did you see? Do you look down at it? You can't miss it. Daniel prays exclusively through this prayer, through the use of the first person plural pronoun. To translate this, you don't have to go back to grammar. More simply put, Daniel speaks to God again and again throughout this prayer in terms of we rather than they. It's a little thing, but it has big implications that I think particularly stand out as we draw near the end of this election season. I mean, if we can discern anything clearly in the midst of these last few months, if there's anything we can clearly see in the midst of these last few months, it is this. Our tendency to isolate and divorce ourselves from one another is still our default response. Before the issues that need to be addressed, before the challenges we face, before the obstacles we have to overcome, our answer still is to blame the other person. We are where we are because of them. It's their fault we're in this mess, not mine. It's their problem that everything isn't working the way it should, not ours. The solution of our candidates is I'm not as bad as him or her. Awesome. And for many of us, 
our vote as a citizen, for many of us, our vote as a citizen in a few days, if we haven't voted already, will be cast more about being against one candidate than really being for the other. We're so good. It is our default to just isolate and divorce ourselves from each other, to point fingers and cast blame. But look at this, people. As Daniel prays, he does not set himself above or apart from anyone else. Can we just stop there for a second? I mean, we've been in Daniel for a while, and if you haven't, go back and look, because, I mean, if we're going to put anybody up on a pedestal, Daniel would be it. Daniel is a man whose character, can we, I think, is unarguably has been impeccable throughout his, his time in exile. He has quite literally represented the best of Israel. So here's a guy who easily could be tempted to go, hey, uh, Lord, I'm not affiliated with them. Hey, Lord, just you and me, man, because these people are nuts. But Daniel, in his prayer, does not pray against the rest. He prays for them. Daniel, this, this gets me, man. Daniel puts on sackcloth and ashes. If there's anybody who doesn't need to put that on, it's Daniel. Daniel puts on sackcloth and ashes. He identifies, he counts himself among those who have dishonored and disobeyed God as he prays. He says, verse four, we have sinned. We have sinned and done wrong. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. My friends, Daniel's confession shows us that it's not just about me, it's about we. You know, when we're adults and we have children, whether they're our children or someone else's, and we see them fighting, you ever had this? Just two, if there's more than two, it's even crazier. He touched me, well he touched me first. He took my thing, well he took my thing first. When, those, when our children come up and they're having a dispute, when they're, having a, uh, a, they're disagreeing and starting to point fingers, as adults, we don't take sides. As parents, we don't take sides, right? What do we do? We tell our kids, hey, we teach them, go work it out. And a good parent doesn't just send them off to work it out. We'll go with them and say, let's work this out. My friends, instinctively we teach this to our children, but suddenly when we become adults, we're back to being children. Pointing fingers. It's their fault. They did it. And our God is a God that we worship that wants us to work it out together. We are here on All Saints Sunday where we remember we are part of the communion of saints. You think that there are people who've gone before you right now up in heaven who are like, Lord, we are not with those people. Thank God we got out of there because those people are a train wreck. No, Hebrew says the great cloud of witnesses is cheering us on, interceding for us, saying, Lord, keep working, keep going to us. Imagine if it was the other way, Lord. No. True confession is realizing we worship a God who wants us to work it out together. True confession is acknowledging we are in this together. We bear each other's burdens because it's not your sin or my sin. It's the brokenness of our sin that draws us away from God and drives us apart from one another. Don't buy into the rhetoric, man, of this campaign season. We all want to believe that somehow we're distant and apart from all that's happening. My friends, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again and I'm willing to talk to you after the service if you need to understand what I mean. We have the candidates we deserve. We have the candidates we deserve. And you could say, well, I'm not with him. I'm not with her. We have allowed this to happen. We have allowed this to happen long before we cast a vote in a primary or we cast a vote in an election. When we sit there and are shocked by what they say, shocked by what they do, we have what we deserve because we have allowed, we have permitted, we have practiced in our own lives the very things that we find so abhorrent. The very things that we're like, oh, that's not what we're about. 
Daniel has the ability by the grace of God to realize, I don't stand apart from these people. I'm in it with them. True confession recognizes that when we distance or separate ourselves from each other, in whatever form, when we distance or separate ourselves from each other, we become less dependent on the righteousness of Christ and more vulnerable to sin because we are immersed in our own self-righteousness. My God, has the self-righteousness been thick this campaign season? True confession is not about haggling over degrees of blame. It's embracing the common problem of our sin. It's acknowledging the depth and extent of the challenge of our brokenness, that no matter how much better I think I am than you, no matter how much worse I am convinced you are than me, we are both still equal in our need for grace. And so Daniel, through this prayer, challenges us, reminds us, rather than removing or excluding ourselves by pointing the finger at others, rather than remaining stuck and choosing to die in the mire of what divides and destroys us, true confession is testifying and living together out of the shared resolution of the cross the far-reaching and transformative answer of the gospel. True confession is not about we. Me, it's about we. True confession is the refusal to crucify each other and instead look to the one who's already paid the price for all of us, who took all our sins, not just yours, not just mine, all our sins upon himself. Jesus Christ, the only one who can transform our scars into new skin, Whatever happens in these next two days, my friends, there is no salvation in an election. There is no salvation in government. Government is important. We have freedom. We should exercise it. We are blessed to live in the land that we do. But don't confuse the government of the United States or any government with the kingdom of God. And don't confuse a candidate with the Messiah. It's just been a little bit of time. There's so much more here, and I would encourage you just to continue to dig into this. But I, I, I hope with the little time we've had this morning, the little time we've spent praying with Daniel, that it's humbled us, truly. That it's guided us. That this time praying with Daniel has strengthened us, not just as we enter the voting booth in the next few days, but as we come out and go forward as the church, not just in this nation, but in all nations of the world, regardless of the outcome. Because Daniel's prayer is our prayer. It's timeless. It's timeless because the God to whom Daniel confesses, the God of whom Daniel confesses, is eternal. True confession is acknowledging and pressing in to the gracious, loving character of this righteous God. And true confession is not just about me, it's about we, you and I, all of us together, owning our shared responsibility and failure and together taking hold of the forgiveness, the salvation, and the new life offered to us through Jesus Christ. Amen.